Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Here's why you should tune in to today's Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. And we have a winner. FTX comes out on top in an auction for Voyager digital assets. We'll explain what that means for Voyager users, plus a deep dive into Web3 and the real-world use cases of tokens with Tasha Labs. As always, we'll break down the conversation into key takeaways at the end. Stay tuned for that. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Moritz Siebert. Moritz, how are you doing? Hey, Ash. Well, I'm always doing great, and you're Real Vision's favorite host, so it's great to be back with you, always. I know that's not true, but I should say, don't <laughs> <It> forget. <is. laughs> well, it's kind of you to say, certainly, Moritz. I should also add, don't forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto. It's free. If you're watching this conversation on YouTube, smash the like button for the algorithm. Now, let's jump right in and talk about the latest price action. Bitcoin is surging on a 24-hour basis. The biggest cryptocurrency is back above 20,000 US dollars for the first time in more than a week. It's a similar story for Ethereum. It has recovered to nearly 1,400 US. Coindesk reports that the latest research note from Bank of America, it says cryptocurrencies continue to trade like risk assets. I guess no surprise there, as central banks continue to make big rate hikes. However, the report noted some recovery in stablecoin inflows. Last week, we saw nearly $500 million flow into stablecoins, a 58% jump on the prior week. Moritz, what are you looking at in terms of price action? Actually, before I get into that, Ash, um, you just mentioned stablecoins. And what became apparent to me really clearly last week, I was traveling in Switzerland, is that, well, first off, there's no real big um stable coin in swiss francs but also not in euro like mm. everything is dominated by usd stable coins and it seems to me that you know as this space develops and stable coins are so important that really we're still waiting for the dominant player in the euro stable coin system that token or coin hasn't emerged yet there are a bunch of there out um but they're all relatively small so mm. it'll be interesting to see who wins that race to your question on price action, you know what? I have absolutely no earthly idea why these markets are up today. Uh, it is so nice to see Bitcoin trading above 20,000. I'm happy about that. Um, maybe with a bit of luck, we'll get Ethereum north of 1,400 uh, before the close of business today. I know these tokens and coins trade all around the clock, but um, well, you know, I'm still kind of like prime for a daily schedule. Um, the correlation to risk assets seems to be intact. You know, we're seeing equity markets trading higher today here in Europe. The futures markets are up in the US. Maybe that's the reason. I really, I fail to see the impetus. What I might add here, and, you know, maybe this is helpful. Last week, all of last week, I was traveling in Switzerland and meeting with family offices and digital asset investors. And really the feedback that we're getting is everybody's still constructive. Like nobody is throwing in the towel and nobody has any plans of throwing in the towel you know we're seeing business being built in this new digital world um the week before last we had you know fidelity and schwab and citadel come out with the announcement of great in an exchange and nasdaq is building a custody business around digital assets so all these brand name players they're entering the space regardless of price action and right. the investors that we're speaking to they might be a little bit gun shy now at that point in time because there's you know so many things moving in the portfolio um the dollar is a wrecking ball and yields are moving higher and inflation is high and you know there's more than enough bad news in the world um you know to really deflect your attention from from crypto but really every time you leave a meeting it's hey you know we think this is real this is going to be moving the needle that's the tech of the future uh, we will invest. We will stay tuned. Um, 
give it a few weeks. We just need to see these markets recovering, kind of like the entire world to calm down a little bit, and then we give it a go again. So I found that really positive and constructive. Um, so just that as a as a side note here. More excellent points uh, across the board there about the long-term interest of the space and a refreshingly honest answer. We really don't know why markets are moving this morning. No. By the way, we don't. We never do, really, most of the time. Yeah, Sorry yeah <laughs> no, it's it's true. There is that indeterminacy. And, and frankly, that's what makes markets uh, so interesting uh, for traders and for others in the space. By the way, I should say, uh, as you mentioned, Switzerland, I was looking at a 50 year chart of dollar Swissy. This is USD CHF. Uh, it's amazing that no one has come up with a stable coin in dollars in, in Swiss. I, I do agree with that. Um, it is really a tiny space. So last week we discussed a project. I think I can mention it here. It's called Luke. L-U-G-H, I think, is the name of that um, token. It is a fiat-backed, fully-backed euro stablecoin with euros actually being held at European banks. Uh, I think it's Societation Royal. So they they have big plans of really growing their business. It's not an algorithmic stablecoin um, or like a, a hybrid type of stablecoin. I was just surprised to learn that these coins, these euro stablecoins are still so small and that everything is dominated by usd stable coins like you know on exchanges we'll get to it i think in a second with ftx or binance right. or in DeFi, everything the entire digital asset space seems to be trading in usd in usdt or in usdc i guess that that's kind of it and right. then there's you know a bunch of other things down the line but it's always dollar focused yeah yeah, extremely well said. By the way, uh, I could chat with you all day, Moritz, but let's go and hit some of our top stories here as well. Uh, you mentioned FTX. FTX US, the crypto exchange run, of course, by Sam Bankman-Fried, has won the auction for assets for Voyager Digital, the bankrupt crypto brokerage. FTX reportedly went up against Binance and a few other bidders. The winning bid is valued at approximately 1.4 billion US dollars. Voyager says its customers will be transferred to FTX US at the conclusion of the bankruptcy process. The agreement will be presented for court approval on October 19. Voyager says more information will come in the next few weeks. Moritz, this was not FTX's first attempt to buy or bail out Voyager, so perhaps it's not a surprise that they won the auction. What do you make of this? I'm not surprised they won the auction. I'm not sure if they overpaid for it. I'm not here to judge, but you know, Sam Bankman-Fried, he sits on a lot of money. Maybe I'm on a limb to say, maybe at some point he's going to be the richest man in the world. Uh, that could likely happen. Clearly, with FTX, the plan is to build one of the world's preeminent crypto exchanges, but not only crypto, it's also traditional assets, right? Yeah. He's got a stake in Robinhood. So I think he has this big game plan that is looking to execute and really build FTX into a trading platform powerhouse in the United States and all around the world. So buying Voyager's assets and you know getting more clients is part of the process. That is just one of the things that you do when you grow your business. So I'm absolutely not surprised to see him buy it by Voyager. Yeah, I should also point out that in the Bloomberg reporting on this story, uh, there's some interesting information on Sam as in terms of his personal stakes. Uh, he's estimated to own more than 50% of FTX, this according to Bloomberg, and also 70% of FTX US and almost all all of Alameda, according to Bloomberg reporting out today. Alameda, of course, is one of the companies uh, in the FTX family of companies that uh, that we've heard so much about in the past. Uh, Moritz, let me go and pivot here to some of the other stories we're looking at today. This FTX story is a fascinating one, but by no means the only thing that's in today's new he news headlines. Eight U.S. states, including New York and California, have filed cease and desist orders against crypto lender Nexo. The states allege Nexo offered interest-bearing products without registering them as securities and providing the necessary disclosures. The filings also allege Nexo misrepresented its products and suggested to investors it is a licensed and registered platform. Uh, in a statement reported by CNBC, Nexo says, and I quote, we have been working with U.S. federal and state regulators, and we understand their urge 
given the current market turmoil and bankruptcies of companies offering similar products to fulfill their mandate of investor protection by examining past behavior of providers of earned interest products. As recent months have clearly underlined, Nexo is a very different provider of earned interest products, as showcased by the fact that it did not engage in uncollateralized loans, had no exposure to Luna UST, did not have to be bailed out or needed to resort to any sort of withdrawal restrictions, close quote. Obviously, that's a mouthful there uh, coming from the Nexo uh, folks about why they believe they should be regulated differently. In the interest of transparency, Nexo is a partner and advertiser at Real Vision. Uh, you know, Moritz, what do you make of the story? There's obviously a lot of legalese there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, both you and I were not the lawyers, but you know, clearly what we can see is that the development of these legal and regulatory regulatory frameworks for coins and tokens, for digital assets in general, is so incredibly complex for regulators to do because it throws all sorts of questions up in the air, which previously you didn't have to answer. Now you have to look at them from a different perspective. Right. You know, it is moving forward. Everybody has their eye on the ball regulators in europe regulators in the us the sec the cftc word you know we'll see who does what at the end of the day um but what i hear as feedback from investors from participators in the space is that a clear regulatory framework when it exists if and when it exists and it will exist at some point that for them is going to be a massive impulse to move into the space to move right. forward because right now they missed the true north they don't have compass they don't really know whether they'll be misstepping uh, when they buy or trade these coins and tokens so they stay away because they don't right. want to you know get into these pitfalls but yeah. once it's clear once they know what they're supposed to do what's within the framework and what's outside of the framework how it's going to be text once there's clarity around this this asset class is probably only going to become bigger and larger. So it's something that I'm actually looking forward to. I'm looking forward to having that clarity come into place and have it enacted. I also hope, you know, I want to mention that at the same time, that we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. There is a risk of things becoming overregulated and very burdensome from the beginning. Yeah. European regulators, for instance, have a tendency to do that. You know, they have all sorts of ideas how they want to you know regulate the flow of stable coin and transaction volumes and these type of things that's probably the wrong-footed approach mm -hmm. it has to be precise but it also has to give breathing room to developers and traders to build that space and move it forward and not kill it from day one that's important i have the feeling though ash that we're moving in that direction and i'm positive about it you have a feeling that we're moving in the direction of this kind of uh, strangle it in its bed? Uh, no, or, no, yeah. no. Please. I have the feeling that we're moving in the right direction, meaning that right. the regulatory frameworks are developed such that people can develop, but they have orientation about what is to do. So it's a good regulatory framework. And I know, you know, when we look back, at first it didn't look like that because regulators and central banks and politicians they felt and maybe they still continue to feel attacked and threatened by this new digital world and these payment systems and you know the peer-to-peer -peer transferability and censorship persistency and you know permissionless trading activities and all these type of things but i think they're slowly but surely getting to grip with it they see the potential they see the disruptive potential that these things can have and they want to make sure that their country the country that they represent and work for that that country can have their share and their seat at the table, I don't think they're going to kill it. I think it's going to be hopefully just right. Mortz, that's so well said, so well framed uh, in terms of the argument, the structure that you put forward. You know, it's interesting when you talk about this idea of when regulatory clarity comes in the space, uh, it'll be a tremendous tailwind in your view. I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of like this, uh, are you feeling glass half empty or glass half full this morning? Obviously, it's it's a significant uh, headwind today uh, as this lack of regulatory clarity exists, but a potential tailwind for the future when we see if we see, as we suspect we will, some resolution of the open and outstanding issues. Absolutely. So something to look forward to, Ash. Indeed.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So moving on to a bit of a lighter story here, we've got a couple of NFT-related updates. First, from Disney. Uh, the Block has flagged that Disney is looking to hire a lawyer to handle transactions related to metaverse, blockchains, NFT, and DeFi transactions. What's particularly noteworthy is that the lawyer will be working on projects that will typically have a, quote, accelerated and aggressive timeline draw what conclusions you will from that reporting from our friends at the block plus a mastercard has struck a partnership with crypto and fiat exchange high to release debit cards adorned with nft images gold members of high who are verified nft owners will be able to personalize their card uh, supported collections include moonbirds bored apes and azukis more it's a couple of bullish stories in the nft space what are your thoughts you know what? When, when I speak to friends of mine, to investors, to clients, just in a sequence, here's what they understand, and here's what they absolutely don't understand. Like when we when we say it's NFTs, Web three, and um, what else? And metaverse, right? Metaverse, they absolutely do not understand. They don't know what that is. It's too abstract, and it's very difficult to explain because there is no clear explanation. And I'm not the one trying it. NFTs, second in the line, they're kind of like, yeah, okay, it's a non-fungible token. It can do certain things, but kind of unclear what that is. And it's also, you know, hyped and bored apes and JPEGs and these type of things. So hmm, we're understanding a little bit of that, but not really everything. Web3 is relatively easy for them to understand. It's easier for me and other people, I think, to explain because it's about you know, moving Web2, which is centralized and where we have large platforms that own our data, we're moving away from that and we're about to compensate contributors in this new world and networks and so on that they understand. Now, back to the NFT question or, you know, what's what, what's happening there. Um, personally, that's just me. I can see some use cases where it immediately clicks. It immediately makes sense. So I've seen a couple of days ago, on LinkedIn, a post where somebody posted a photo of an airline ticket issued as an NFT. Mm. So that I find very interesting. The same could be true for a concert ticket or a hotel room or any of these type of things. Because if there's a platform, we don't know what that platform is going to be yet. I'm not sure if it's going to be OpenSea, but there's going to be like an eBay for airline tickets. I can see where this becomes a more frictionless experience that cuts out a middleman type of function when you think about buying an airline ticket right if you cancel it or when you have to cancel it sometimes you don't get your money back or you have to pay more up front in order to have a free cancellation right yeah. um the same is true for hotel rooms the same is true for concert tickets so just to have that secondary market availability is something that's great i can immediately understand that um some other things i can see why people are trying it out and maybe I would try it out, but I don't immediately and directly see the connection and the value add. Um, let me give you these, right. like, you know, luxury retailers, Gucci and Tiffany's. And, you know, we now have this combination of if you buy that earring or if you buy that necklace, then, you know, you get the NFT on top of that. This past weekend, I spoke to a friend of mine, Tim. He's the CEO of the world's largest platform for the secondary market in luxury watches. It's called Chrono24. So if you want to buy a Rolex or a Patek Philippe, odds are you're going to be looking on that platform because I think they have 30 or 40,000 transactions per month. It's a big, big business, it's the biggest, big, the biggest business. So I chatted with him and said, look, I mean, why don't you get in the NFT business and you connect the sale of a luxury watch, which is expensive, with an NFT? So it's kind of like, you know, it's bought here, you have the NFT and you have the watch. And he said, like, look, Moritz, we're aware of this. We know it's going on. We have teams working on that since month, but we haven't arrived at the point yet where we really understand what's going on or where we could really formulate the value add and the utility 
of that NFT, of that token in connection with the purchase of a watch. He did say, I could just do it. I could just do it and probably increase the valuation of the firm and be cool and make an announcement. But right. you know, he's like, I don't really do it unless I really understand what's going on. And if and when I understand it, then I will do it. And I think that was just testament of, or kind of like, you know, reflective of so many things, representative of so many feedbacks that I get from friends and investors all around the world. It's kind of like, oh, so hard to understand what's really moving there. Right. Time will tell, Ash. We have to be patient. Yeah, hard to understand. And of course, we're looking, as you suggest, at these real world use cases, whether it's airline tickets, hotel tickets, as you pointed out. Uh, I see Peter Rook in the YouTube comments is just at airline points as well as airline tickets. These real world use cases, as we were talking about uh, in the MasterCard example. In fact, this is exactly what we've been talking about here, this idea of these sort of uh, these these use cases that we're looking at. I spoke with Tasha Che, macroeconomist and uh, founder of Tasha Labs about these real world Web3 use cases. Let's take a listen to what she has to say on exactly this point, Moritz. To be honest, at this stage, I cannot tell you that there are a whole bunch of them because <laughs> I'm just being honest, you know, the, the past cycles, yes, we've seen like a tremendous uh, exponential growth in price actions of crypto assets. But are there any exp exponential growth in terms of real world utilities of uh, uh, tokenization models or Web3 business models? I have not seen a whole lot of them. I think this is just a phase of the industry, though. There is a, like any new technology development, uh, you've got to allow the speculative cycles to propel more and more people to start experiment with the new business models, uh, with uh, what technology can enable people to do. So I'm actually starting to see more and more of kind of real world applications of Web3 business models. So what are some of those things that you're starting to see on the horizon, Tasha? Yeah, for example, uh, a project uh, that uh, I looked into recently is called the uh, Sweatcoin, which is a move to earn project, which is, uh, it sounds a little ridiculous because you get paid in tokens by walking. So it's like a little bit like a, a step in uh, on Solana. So, th but th this one is... Uh, it, it, it's different in the sense that it's really rooted in the real economy in the sense that uh, it's actually the move to earn is used as a mechanism to connect users with advertisers. So it's really a uh, advertising company to, for me, uh, in, in, in all definition of the world, at least at, at this stage, but it uses a tokenization model to drive growth so that, uh, you know, it can generate a higher rate of adoption for as a new application. So I, I, I can go into a little bit more of that. But basically, um, you, you, you think about uh, uh, how a new company can start growing, right? Uh, one of the mechanisms that you can use to drive growth is to give users incentives. Uh, 20 years ago, when PayPal just started, uh, for a while, they gave out every new user $100 or something for signing up. Uh, for doing nothing, you, you get $100 just by opening a PayPal account. But that is a very, very expensive marketing stunt, right? So if you have, if you are a venture back company, you have deep pockets, that's easier to pull off, but that's not available for most companies. So, but with tokenization, the beauty of it is uh, you can use tokens to incentivize users at early stage of your product adoption. Now, given that you're, if your you if your token actually has utility, and by utility I mean it somehow it's linked to um, the real values in the economy. For example, you can allow users to uh, use tokens to redeem products and services from you in the later stage. That's one form of utility. There are others, but as long as your token has utility and your product ha is a viable product, then this is a much cheaper way for you to generate growth to start a marketing campaign because you are not pulling from your current fiat cash flow of your company, but instead you are actually, you know, using your future cash flow and future profits to fund today's growth using the tokenization as a bridge. Actually, you can think of it as a, almost like a bridge loan from your users to the company today to fund your growth. 
So, and also it, it you create uh, all sorts of opportunities for innovation in terms of how you distribute the value of the, uh, the value added that's created by an application and by a product or a company. Because uh, once users, uh, you incentivize users with tokens and the tokens has utilities in the future, either through redeeming for products and services or through other mechanisms, you actually increase the stakeholder base of your company or of your project beyond the traditional shareholders. Moritz, you heard Tasha's answer there. What do you think about the Web3 use cases? Do you share Tasha's optimism about the future of this space? I, I do, and, and a couple of interesting points there raised by Tasha. Um, I do agree wholeheartedly with her that the UI and the UX needs to improve. It needs okay. to become easier. It needs to be absolutely foolproof and easy to understand for people to use it. We're not there yet. Um, I think people are working toward that direction and they will make it happen, but we're not there yet. Um, but, you know, overall, like I said before, the Web3 piece is something that's actually explainable. And it's something that people can understand. It's something that they're rooting for because they know, hey, that should be a better experience than Web2 because I'm no longer the product. I'm no longer just submitting data into an abyss, into a black box, and I'm essentially the product for advertisement. You know, I can get a compensation, I can add value, I can contribute, I can get something in return. All of that makes a lot of sense. It feels like, you know, giving the power back to the people. Definitely that is something that I'd place a bet on. Yeah, so true and so well said. Obviously, UI, UX, user interface, user experience is still a significant challenge for the Web3 space. My mother still does not have a MetaMask wallet day, uh, I don't know, 700 of that comment, but still true. Uh, you know, obviously, there are lots of risk factors in this space, and we talk about them uh, with Tasha in our next clip uh, when it comes to Web3. Let's have a listen to what Tasha has to say. Tasha, on the flip side of the coin, you've talked about token-enabled Ponzi-nomics. Talk a little bit about what that means and what some of the risks are for these projects. Well, that's why uh, that that's uh, what uh, you know. What what I mentioned is ninety five percent of Web three projects that you see today, including a lot of uh, um, gaming and uh, DeFi projects. Uh, the initial adoption that you see is largely driven by this reflexive financial model, right? So, including some of the, the play to earn um, games, uh, some of the um, uh, DeFi exchanges. Uh, the underlying product is not necessarily very good if there's no token incentives, if there's no expectation that, oh, token price will go up tomorrow, then you, you will see way less the so-called adoption in the project. So what I encourage people to ask is uh, when you are evaluating a project, you think about if you take this token away, what is left? What is the, what is the business model that is left in this project? What, if, if, if it doesn't have a token, can it still survive the marketplace? So that is uh, what I encourage both investors and, and, and uh, project owners to, to, to think about. Because when you introduce a token, it really, you, it, it, it's, it's a very, very powerful tool to drive growth. But you also open a bunch of, uh, you, you open a Pandora's box that, you know, uh, one of the downside is uh, you, you kind of linked yourself um, what you, you sync yourself up with the crypto price cycles, more or less, because at this stage, we don't have a mature enough market yet for different right. types of tokens to differentiate themselves, to uncorrelate themselves. So when bull market and bear market hits, you see like token correlations, probably 70 to 80%, no matter what the token is about. So if you're a new project, does it make sense to actually open up huge secondary market volatility for your token in that case this is something for funders to think about. So, but, but that's why I emphasize one of the key thing I think for projects to think about is uh, does the product have product market fit? Does it have viable utility? And also, also um, equally important, I think is the type of project that needs to have some kind of uh, network effect or in economic terms, you can, you, you can think of it as a marginally declining, uh, as a declining marginal cost. Because uh, with tokenization, what happens is 
it's a cheaper way for you to feel growth, right? But you need to have a big enough, totally addressable market, and you need to have like a big enough market in order for this, in order for the tokenization to generate a benefit, right? And also, right. you you it's ideal if your cost. Operation cost is declining with the number of users or with the right. ge geography areas that you cover, because otherwise, you know, if your co cost is flat or going up, I'm talking about marginal cost, then the benefit of tokenization is is much less, right? The the benefit of growth is much less. So it's really it's more suitable for the type of uh, businesses that can potentially generate a network effect that can potentially have kind of some kind of winner take all. Um, effect in uh, the industry in the industry that that is a type of product uh, I see more suitable for for the tokenization driven growth model. Tasha, it's so great to have you on to pres present this from the perspective of an economist because fundamentally what you're saying here is the laws of economics haven't been suspended because of tokens. If you don't have a business that has declining marginal costs at scale, uh, you're probably not going to increase your margins. I mean, we could have been having this conversation uh, at a coffee house somewhere in Amsterdam or London in the second half of the 17th century talking about joint stock corporations, right? This new structure doesn't suspend the fundamental laws of economics of supply and demand and you need to have a product that there's demand for and if you don't you're probably not going to be successful and the phrase well but it's got a token associated with it isn't really going to close that gap yeah i don't think at least not in the long term that's why you know their projects are reaching out to me well not projects like business owners it's like hey i have a restaurant in kansas city is it good for me to have a token i'm like okay uh how many people in the town in kansas city that you're in like five thousand people that that's like tokenization is not going to help you because you don't have a declining marginal cost, right? It's, it's not a kind of scalable businesses. But on the other hand, if you have a network of, I don't know, uh, laundry shops or restaurants or, or whatever, that covers a vast geography that has potential to scale, then that's a totally different matter. Okay, Ponzanomics. Tasha says, in essence, that some projects don't have much in the way of organic appeal. What they are driven by, she suggests, is reflexivity. In other words, people participate in the network, not because they find the value uh, today in the products and services that are offered, but rather because they see the value of the network rising in the future. Morris, at the end of this excellent long clip with Tasha, I make the point that tokens haven't suspended the laws of supply and demand any more than joint stock corporations did, you know, 400 years ago. What are your thoughts about this? I agree. And, you know, it's kind of like questionable whether they were able to close the gap between real economics and these digital economics. And everything Tasha said, I actually agree with in that clip. It was a long clip. But if you have a business which cannot stand on its own feet, on its own two feet economically without a token, then probably it won't be able to survive with a token. And I say that clearly this space attracts a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of, you know, people who want to build a business. That's fine. That's also what's needed to develop the space. But I have a hunch that a lot of these businesses and ideas, they are premised around the token. So it's kind of like token first, business mm -hmm. later, token first, business second. I don't think that's a good way to build a business. You gotta be thinking about what is that business actually going to do in the real world? Who are going to be my customers? What is the product that I can offer to them? Why should they be willing to pay for it? And why do I, have, why do I as a business have a right to win this game? And if you just have a token and everything is focused on that token, that doesn't mean that you're going to win. That just means that you're building a business because presumably you think it's sexy and cool to be in the token business, but that's about it. I would really like uh, businesses to focus more on the real world. Like you said it, Ash, the supply and demand dynamics, you know, they're not right. suspended, right. they're real, they do exist. Because if that's the case, it also prevents us from experiencing all these accidents, which will likely happen down the road. You can clearly expect if that continues, you know, 95 to maybe 99% of these businesses will not make it. They won't make it to the other side and they'll go out of business. And, you know, that creates a lot of negativity and, you know, a lot of, you know, essentially an attack factor also, you know, for investors to say, look, I see, I told you so. It doesn't work. You know, it doesn't really change anything. It doesn't move the needle. I'd really like us as a, as a group, as an industry, as a sector, if you will, to avoid that. 
and not overdo it, not overhype it, but stay real. Yeah, obviously, uh, the supply and demand issue, just one question. Uh, another open question here pertaining to Web3 tokens is this, are they securities or are they not? The answer to that question, of course, has a profound regular impact, regulatory impact. I've asked Tasha about precisely this question. Let's take a look at the clip. Tasha, I want to ask you a little bit about utility and utility tokens, this kind of term of art that's somewhat vaguely defined. I know you're an economist and not an attorney, but there's this question about whether or not these tokens are securities. And this is based on something called the Howey test, which has four prongs. It's an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profit to be derived from the efforts of others. You know, in many ways, many of the things that we've been talking about here, just sort of casually or anecdotally sound as though they could fit that bill. Do you have concerns about the idea of uh, regulation potentially damping the party? Uh, or do you see this way for a utility token uh, as a construct to help absorb or buffer some of that risk. Okay. Uh, to be honest, it is a concern. It is a concern to me, but it, it, is it, is it's a huge, huge concern. Uh, not yet. Okay. The reason is when I say utility tokens, so, so I, you can broadly define tokens to me into like three categories. Number one is quasi equity, which is you, you, it's it's like a semi stocks. It's a different way to do stocks. You basically it's like a share of the company, and then you receive some profits from the company. And the number two category meme tokens that you know has no utility whatsoever. It just it's just a token associating with the project by name only, right? So, but some of the, some of the project they issue these tokens is because they don't know how else to do it to, could, without being qualified as a security. The number three types, what I call utility tokens, are tokens that you, you can earn through activities. Um, you basically use a token to drive user adoption or drive certain kind of uh, incentivize certain kind of behavior. And the token has utility in the case that uh, you can actually, the token actually serve a function in your product and services. Now you mentioned how you tax, yes. In, in a lot of cases, it is a concern, but let me ask you this, okay? If, if, if I'm a user of a application and, uh, if, if, if I, uh, you know, buy something or I have some activity on this application and, and an application gives me some token, I have not invested any money. Okay. So this is not an investment contract. I did not invest any money in your token. You gave me a token, um, to, at, as, as, a, at, as a reward for a certain type of behavior. All right. And uh, I can use this token in the future to redeem future products and services from you, right? So how, how is this a investment contract? <laughs> so, so, um, I, I'm, I'm not in, in I'm not an investor, but I am a stakeholder. I have a stake in your product because I have contributed to it, right? I have contributed. I have to help you grow. So my, if you, if you, the, the quote unquote investment from my side is not money, but you know, time and energy, for example. So, um, I think there are a lot of these, uh, you, you can think of all, all of these, uh, different cases. I, I think this is really case by case. And you need to look at, uh, and, and also in terms of who are actually managing these tokens, is it a for-profit enterprise or is it, um, a autonomous organization? Right, and then you 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 get into the weeds of uh, how decentralized or how autonomous this organization is. I think we then we are in the pretty much uncharted territory, and, and, and I think uh, you know this is something that regulators and the industry definitely need to think about together. There 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 are a lot of these gray areas, but I can tell you, a lot of the utility tokens that the ways that you can you can use utility tokens should not qualify them as securities by the very strict definition. Now, maybe like it, like, okay, so, but you also have second market, secondary market trading, right? So, so you can theoretically, you can, you can buy this token in the market also. So how do you qualify that? So, um, I don't, I don't know the answer, <laughs> uh, but, 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 but the bottom line is utility tokens to me, they do, they should not be classified as traditional securities. 
Moritz, for me, this has always been a huge open question. Will, rec will regulators recognize utility tokens as a separate class in a way that doesn't classify them as securities? Tasha raises some very interesting questions here about precisely this topic, asking things like, what if you didn't invest money? What if you're earning the token through activity? What if the token has utility in terms of products and services? What if the network is truly decentralized? Obviously, these are mechanisms of differentiating these from typical investment contracts, uh, as you would see framed by, for example, the Howey test, which is the test mm -hmm. uh, that federal courts and SEC used to determine whether or not something is a security. She says we're basically in uncharted waters here. Uh, I know neither of us are lawyers, not legal advice, not financial advice. That's right. But Moritz, what are your big picture thoughts here? Yes, yeah, so many what ifs. What if the utility token, what if, you know, I really don't know. It is above my pay grade. The thing that I uh, think about or select the question that I think about is when you have this mix of a stock corporation, you know, a corporation that is owned by stockholders and these stockholders have a right to the profits. And all of a sudden you mix this with tokens. And if the tokens have a right to the same economics, that is going to be super interesting because shareholders won't like that, you know, right. unless they have a say in this or they also become token holders. When you think a lot about an airliner, you know, the airliner will have the air miles on its balance sheet as a liability you right. know so it's it, it's clear it's there it is not entirely clear how that would work with tokens and this blending of oh we're going to give out this token and therefore we're incentivizing a new group of people to join our business or we're building a network and a community around this and you know in return they will get a reward a financial reward that's great thinking i'm not sure if it's going to fly so easily with existing stockholders now, clearly, if you build it from scratch, if you have a DAO or, you know, you built your entire organization around the token, there's no longer stock. It's all about the token and the token, you know, points to the economics. Okay, fine, then it'll work. But I guess we'll see how this plays out. Really, sorry, Ash, I can't give you a more, you know, specific answer here. It is, it is really in motion. Um, we'll see yeah. what that brings. Yeah, very much. By the way, I would say it's not above your pay grade. It's just a different sort of page silo. I mean, that's what it makes is. this what makes yeah. this space so challenging in many ways is that it's very complex technology with complex math and cryptography driving it on the one hand. Then there's complex finance and economics. And then there's all this very, as you suggest, unsettled complexity around the legal, mm -hmm. regulatory, and compliance aspects of this. Uh, these are some obviously complicated questions that probably take years to get sorted out. Some people have even said decades. And so uh, obviously this is a space that's moving very quickly, but still significant challenges remain. I agree 100%. I mean, let's see what happens uh, and how it's going to pan out. It's take some, it'll take some time for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So with all that said, we've obviously covered a great deal of ground here today. Uh, here's what I think viewers can take away from this conversation with Tasha Che and with you today, Moritz. Uh, she thinks, Tasha thinks, for now, not a whole lot of tokens represent real-world utility. But she emphasizes it's still early days in the space and that interesting projects are starting to pop up. She gives Sweatcoin as an example. This is a move to earn uh, play um, that we've talked about here uh, in the uh, in the conversation. Uh, it's sort of a, a use case that's rooted in the real economy. In terms of growth opportunities, Tasha mentions giving users incentives. Tokenization can be used for that in the early stages of adoption, in her view. However, she also cautions about an absence of real-world use cases in what she sees as about 95% of current offerings. Tasha wants people to ask this question when evaluating their project. Would it survive if there was no token for it? Uh, can it withstand a crypto winter that sees token prices plunge? Moritz, you alluded to something quite similar to this uh, in your remarks as well. Tasha also says that it only makes sense for companies to tokenize if there's a big total addressable market. If marginal costs don't decline, then benefits of growth and tokenization will dwindle in Tasha's view. Finally, Tasha thinks the question of whether or not tokens are securities is a concern. She splits, splits her token taxonomy into three different categories, 
quasi equity. This was what you were alluding to before with competition mm -hmm. with equity holders, meme tokens, uh, tokens that don't really have a specific use case, and utility tokens, which she describes uh, as tokens where there's some functionality in terms of the supply and demand of a product or service. It. She believes utility tokens will be the least likely to be classified as securities by regulators, but this will have to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. This is uncharted waters when it comes to regulation. Uh, of course, obviously, you know, this is, as we say, very early. Uh, and I think Tasha makes that disclosure pretty clearly in terms of uh, her view of the space. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So moving on to our final segment of the show, viewer questions. I think we only have time for one today. Uh, Moritz, what do you say? Should we dive in and hit this? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to that. Let's do it, Ash. This one comes from Mark M. on the Real Vision website. Tether likely uses U.S. bonds as part of its basket of collateral. It seems that recent the recent devaluation of bonds will increase the probability that Tether is not properly collateralized. What are your thoughts, Moritz? I think this is probably a time for, uh, for your um, Cliff Notes version of the bond market uh, and how it functions as collateral. Yeah, look, it's a question that you know comes up repeatedly, and um, I, I, I did speak about this before. By the way, I'm not sure I would have to look at the uh, Tether website, what the current holdings are. But if I remember correctly, in a roundabout way, it's say 89, 90% or so cash, maybe a bit more than that. Even. Don't quote me that. It doesn't matter for the example that I'm going to make. And then you have um, cash equivalents, which is, you know, T-bills or maybe even treasury notes and bonds with longer durations. And then it has other investments. And other investments could be commercial paper, uh, it could be Bitcoin, other digital assets, other stable coins, who knows? There's no clarity around that. Now, the exchange from Tether to US dollar works for sizes or volumes more than 100,000 US dollar worth. So you can send your Tether in and you will get $100,000 back or more. Um, but clearly, they can only send you back the dollars. They don't send you back their other investments. They don't send you back the T-bills that they may be long on their book. So if there's more and more people requesting a redemption, they send in the tether in return for fiat US dollar cash. Then what that means is that over time, the asset pool starts to dilute because they're selling the cash and the relative weighting of the cash to their other investments becomes smaller, right? So they become diluted to a point where maybe that no longer works. So to the bond question, you know, 30 day or maybe 90 day T-bills, okay, that stuff's being rolled. So it's kind of like you have, you have a very clear horizon. I need to make it through the next 30 days. I need to make it maybe through the next 90 days. But if they sit on two year even, which isn't all too long a duration, but you know, the two year note in the US, the yield of the two note has skyrocketed in recent weeks and months, you know, let alone the 10 year. So clearly, the longer the duration, the greater the right. risk of price moves. And you know, that could have an adverse impact on on their portfolio on their collateral portfolio, because you know, they're along these bonds and notes and bills, and interest rates have risen recently, which means the price, the current market price of these assets, is now lower, all else being equal, which essentially increases the attack factor. Mm -hmm. That being said, Ash, a lot of people have said like at some point Tether is going to break and maybe it will, but it's also been around for a long time and it has been attacked many times. People have open shorts and all these type of things. I really hated that they don't have clarity on their holdings. I hated that the audits don't come in. But I also have to admit that it is still standing. And in a way, it's becoming more what people would call Lindy with every attack that it survives. You know, it's 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 kind of there. Maybe some other stable coin will, you know, uh, take over USDC, for instance, and, you know, people will have more trust in that and it'll move over. But for now, you know, it's there. 
you know, excellent explanation as always, Moritz, on all things capital markets. Uh, the 400 level explanation. I'll just fill in some uh, some details for people who may need the Cliff's Notes version. Uh, so this idea of the Lindy curve is that the longer a thing survives, the longer it will survive. And if you're new to capital markets, if you're new to fixed income, I know this can be a lot to digest. Uh, but I would just say, from a from a sort of a very basic understanding perspective, you know, the thing about U.S. Treasuries is I know, and I know people will yell at me uh, on the gold side, but they are generally held uh, to have zero credit risk, meaning that uh, you're going to get a dollar back for every dollar that you invest. Um, the challenge when you see these huge fluctuations in yield, which means uh, fluctuation in prices, yield is rising, prices declining. When you see that happen, that obviously happens uh, more toward the longer end of the curve. Uh, if you're talking about T-bills, which are maturing in 52 weeks or less, they're the, the shortest version of U.S. Treasury securities. There's far less interest rate risk. There's less sensitivity to it. Uh, and if you have a even a 30-year bond that's going to um, that's going to come to maturity tomorrow. This is the difference between tenor, the amount of time that's remaining on a bond versus maturity, the time uh, how long it has uh, in it to pay out. Uh, at issuance, if you're holding a bond that is about to mature, it's going to mature at par uh, either way. So when you see these fluctuations, uh, it's obviously important to understand that the constituency of that treasury security portfolio matters a great deal in terms of price risk, in terms of uh, in terms of the the fluctuation that you would see around that. I hope uh, that answers your question, Mark. It was an excellent one, uh, Moritz. As always, a fantastic conversation. I always love having you uh, with us on the show. Thank you again for your insights. You're more than welcome, Ash. It's always a pleasure to be on with you. That's it for today's show. Thank you for watching. As always, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Smash that like button and hit the notification bell so that you know when we go live. You'll get an alert uh, if you smash that like button and hit uh, the notification bell. Remember, this is your show, guys. We want to hear what's working for you and what's not working. So drop a comment below and let us know your feedback. What guests do you want to see? What themes should we cover? We appreciate you sharing your time with us today, and we especially appreciate your comments criticisms and suggestions. Tomorrow on this show, we've got Santiago Velez on to talk about his interview with Sergei Gorbanov from Algorand. Before we go, some exciting news about Real Vision. We're refreshing the bread and butter of Real Vision, the essential tier. We're launching multiple new shows, including Make or Break, Steno's Signals, that of course with Andrea Steno Larson, Three Ideas, and The Collectors, all at a reduced price of $99 Per year, go to realvision.com forward slash get essential. That's realvision.com forward slash get essential to sign up today. We'll leave you now with a snippet of the new offering. See you tomorrow live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great day. The Sri Lankan Prime Minister's house set alight. The first is authoritarianism. The second is corruption. The FOMC is strongly resolved to bring inflation down to 2%. Home builders are abandoning homes. Massive protests going on here. We're going to see a material impact here on growth and indeed on earnings, which my colleague... Change is happening and you can fear it. But you're not going to stop it. There are really only two countries in Europe that have managed to maintain a replacement level birth rate, France and Sweden. This is the biggest bubble in the history of the world, and you have no clue. It's all herd mentality. It's the same as the property market. What happens over the next few months could define what happens over the next few years. So we want to make sure that you understand why. You've probably realized that we really have been listening to you.